Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. My name is Ferenc Lotto, and I'm delighted to host Samuel Moyn today. Welcome to the show, Samuel. Thank you so much for inviting me. Samuel Moyn is Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School, and he's also a professor of history at the same university, where he has been based since 2017, following tenured appointments at Columbia and at Harvard. He requires no introduction, really, to those who care about advances in intellectual history, legal history, and more particularly, the historiography of human rights. He has written and edited several pioneering books, including his 2010, The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Christian Human Rights from 2015, and Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World from 2018. Samuel Moyne's brand new book is titled Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, which offers a fascinating intellectual history of modern and contemporary times, and which we are here to discuss today. I should briefly mention that uh, beyond his uh, manifold academic ac accomplishments, uh, Samuel Moyne is also a prolific contributor to the broader intellectual conversation uh, in the US uh, and also outside. And he has published in political and cultural magazines such as the Atlantic, uh, Boston Review, uh, or The Nation as well. Uh, now, you call your new book, Humane, an anti-war history of the laws of war. And you state in the preface, uh, which I'm quoting, uh, that you set out to discover where the moral imperative of peace had come from, when my country, that is to say the US, had honored it, why it had spurned it, and how in my lifetime, many became less committed to peace than to making America's global violence less cruel, especially by newly relevant standards of the international laws of war. Now you underline in the same preface that the history of expectations and rules for peace on the one hand, and the development of rules for humane conduct within hostilities on the other have mostly been treated separately uh, in previous scholarship. So let me start by asking you, what motivated you to try and bring these two histories together? And what are some of the key insights that such an integrated treatment of the pacifist cause and the agenda of humanizing war allows you to develop uh, in this new book? Well, thank you very much for beginning with such a terrific question. You know, um, this is my first attempt to write a, a book for a more popular audience, but this book is also oriented to the professional uh, historiography and broader scholarship on the history of war and peace and the, the regulation of armed conflict. And what I noticed is that there were um, books about um, the, the rise of restraint in war, uh, notably one by my own colleagues here at Yale Law School, Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro called The Internationalists, that didn't mention 
regulations on the conduct of hostilities once they broke out. And then there were books about those regulations. And again, one of my own colleagues named John Witt uh, ha has written a, a, a brilliant masterpiece on the 19th century American uh, contribution to that subject. But once again, it was it taken in isolation uh, from, from the, the other story. And so I thought it would be interesting to put them together. And for political reasons, reflecting on my time, I thought it would be uh, not just interesting, but imperative because I really wrote the book in response to Barack Obama's presidency. When I saw that claiming to make war more humane was somehow connected to the extension in time and the expansion of space of the war itself, uh, the global war on terror, uh, more precisely. And so I wondered, how did that happen? Uh, and I was really amazed when I look back at the 19th century that the founders of both of these attempts, either to keep war from happening or stop it once it starts, or the effort to make it more humane, were aware of the tensions between these two agendas. Uh, and I, I try to give a history of a debate an open debate in the 19th century in which pacifists in particular, but anti-war forces more generally aiming for peace, worry about humane war. Uh, and what I try to argue is that Americans end up being in the right place at the right time to actually realize some of the worries about making war humane that were first propounded at the very inception of that project. And so the book is really about the cost for peace uh, of, of, of a, a more recent, uh, more recently popular agenda, uh, uh, at least in my country, although I believe beyond. Great. Again, one of the things you argue powerfully uh, is how from the 1970s onwards, uh, the laws of war became constraining rather than permissive, and that this was just around the time when the public and also the professional conversation moved from concern with aggression to one with atrocity, right? This is, of course, a theme you uh, already uh, covered in some of your previous uh, and really insightful uh, writings. And here you, you show that uh, increased expectations of humanity uh, in warfare began to reign, but that did not at all uh, bring a global peace, and nor did, in, nor did it uh, in fact lessen uh, global hierarchies and, and uh, domination, right? So, so first of all, what might account for such a sea change uh, in the 70s? That's really a large question uh, we could try to tackle perhaps. And equally importantly, how do you view the role of international humanitarian law 
uh, and, 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 the, and the role it has played since uh, the 70s. And would you perhaps also be willing to reflect on what has been gained and what might have been lost as a consequence of such new expectations towards humanity in warfare and our preoccupation uh, with atrocities? So let me begin with the second part of the question. I, I wanna make clear that I think the cause of, of humane war is in itself a, a good and noble one. Uh, and it, 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 the sole question is, is whether those who advocate it or tolerate it incur this risk of entrenching war itself, which may happen sometimes and may not. But you're absolutely right. I, I try to contend strongly that it, in a sense, while foreseen in the 19th century, it only became a live possibility, not only in the 20th, but in the late 20th century. So in part, there's a negative argument um, about the status of the laws of war before that period, when they weren't yet known as international humanitarian law, which is a rebranding accomplished in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Um, when I look back, it's not that there was no hum humane agenda in the laws of war starting in the 1860s with the first Geneva Convention, but that most of the laws of war um, do not reflect that agenda. Um, uh, I think worse, most of the laws of war, um, while they do involve some constraint, um, uh, uh, are, are involve most license when it comes to those who can be excluded from um, coverage altogether because they're irregular fighters, which means mostly that they're colonial, uh, they're fighting in colonial circumstances um, and are typically are, are racialized enemies for Europeans as well as Americans fighting them. Finally, even to the extent there, there was a little bit of, you know, humane content in the laws of war through the mid 20th century, it was generally set aside. Uh, and so I, I narrate how depressed people were about the project of humane war in the immediate aftermath of World War One. It's not that peace seemed immediately available either, but it was so such a priority uh, at, at the time that the cause of humane war took a backseat. And I think that was even true after World War II to a significant extent. So what changed? What's the situation in the 1960s and 70s? Well, I think there are two big geopolitical events that are connected um, and, and and a third that, that is probably most decisive in my account. So the first two um, would be the, the decolonization of European empires, such that first, there are more states uh, precisely um, peopled by those who have been the victims of, of the very permissive laws of war before. Now, it's not that post-colonial states don't want to fight wars, and indeed, they hew out new possibilities for thinking about the justice of emancipatory wars as they see them, but they also act 
to make war more humane because they know that great powers are remain armed to the teeth compared to them and they don't want intervention even though it may happen and it has in our time but second and then correspondingly west european empire is over and protected by americans there is no need let's say for west europeans to fight in the brutal way they have for centuries and it's very important as they think about their own implication in the Holocaust, that uh, West Europeans, um, uh, let's say, pose as the moralists of our world. Uh, and that takes many forms, embracing human rights, but in, in the, this context, embracing uh, an, an ethic of humane warfare, when in fact, it was West Europeans who were the most brutal of warriors in world history. Uh, and then we get to the, the kind of third and most decisive thing, I think, which is that um, America has lost the Vietnam War and it is shamed uh, by its conduct. Uh, now, I think mainly that's because it, it lost, its conduct had been worse, more in violation of any you know, credible standards of morality in Korea or World War II, in the Pacific especially. But American citizens shame their country and their state uh, after the My Lai massacre is revealed. Uh, and the military understands that it needs to, let's say, self-humanize, self-moralize, and its significant actors move in the direction of uh, participating in the renovation of the laws of war. And so there's a kind of perfect con convergence of factors um, that leads not just to the revision and content, of the laws of war to make them international humanitarian law, but in the acceptance by the, the superpower of the importance of these. Of course, it interprets these standards its own way, but the fact that the American military embraces humanity is decisive, I think. Great. Again, let us perhaps jump a bit ahead in time uh, to the uh, Gulf War, the first Gulf War in 1990 and 91, just when Europeans were uh, typically celebrating at the end of the Cold War. Uh, there is also a stunning uh, coincidence which you point to uh, in the book and which really made me uh, think a lot uh, when, I, when I read this, which is that the international NGO Human Rights Watch moved uh, to monitor uh, this international conflict. And this was indeed the first time that they did so. And this was also the time when uh, military lawyers were, so to say, brought along uh, by the US and they newly uh, inserted themselves uh, in the process of picking targets in a so-called humane way, right? So, so again, the, the second part of your book really zooms in on the less atrocious US-led conflicts. Again, you just mentioned that in a way we can really talk about the decline uh, of atrocious behavior, you know, starting maybe with the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, and on. Uh, so so we, we have arrived at a, at, at a moment when 
wars are typically uh, less atrocious, but but this also ha has gone hand in hand with a major concern with humanity of uh, warfare. And again, as you, as you argue in the book, this has really been accompanied uh, by a bipartisan uh, consensus in U.S. politics for ignoring legal constraints on going to war, right? Which is in many ways, of course, much more fundamental as, as a question. Uh, so what is more, this, this less atrocious way of fighting a globalized conflict has also meant uh, that the U.S. has engaged uh, in, 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 in wars that recognize fewer limitations in space uh, and time, right? It has, war has in that sense been, uh, been extended. Um, and the result has really been a curious a phenomenon which you at some point call humanized militarism, right? So to say, prioritizing preventive forms of often deadly counterterrorism. And this has led to what nowadays uh, many would call the endless wars uh, of the early 21st century, right? So, so may I ask how you would place uh, the war on terror, right? Which has been uh, debated so much uh, in recent days and in recent weeks, how you would place this, this uh, war on terror into the history uh, that your book traces starting again in the mid uh, 19th century? What has been truly novel about it uh, in a legal sense and also in a very practical uh, sense? And more specifically, uh, what does it imply that the borders between war and policing have become uh, increasing, increasingly blurred. Good. So it, I, I, I uh, maybe will approach the kind of 1989 uh, moment and the Gulf War that follows, and then the post 2001 moment by by looking, you know, at the at the at the middle of the 20th century first. Um, because it's not just that the United States coming out of World War II sponsors the United Nations Charter, which prioritizes peace, um, that it sponsors the Nuremberg Trials, which for all its faults um, is really an aggression trial. It kind of in, in consonance with the, the, the universal emphasis on, on, on on the, the, the human interest in a peaceful world. Um, but that once we get to Vietnam, we find, uh, I try to show a, a similar a set of interests. So when Americans begin to think about the relevance of the UN Charter and even the Nuremberg trials to Vietnam, it's not principally because of atrocities Americans are alleged to commit, but rather because they've go gone to war illegally. And I mean, famously, Bertrand Russell has a whole inquest that is focused on uh, aggressive war in, in, the, in the tradition, the authentic tradition of the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. After the, the kind of the change in the 19... 70s that we're speaking about, you do get a unipolar moment after 1989. The anti-war sentiment, uh, not just of the UN Charter, but of, of a lot of resistance to America's Cold War interventions in Vietnam and so many other places is in decline. Uh, and the, the, the possibility 
of uh, of a of a moral America on the world stage, uh, including one that may advance morality through war, comes to the fore. And so to me, it's quite significant that in the 90s, we get not very much concern about the legality of America's, uh, of the wars that it starts, even though there are times, as in the Kosovo, bombings blatantly in violation of international law, but much more emphasis on their conduct. And as you say, it's very significant in this regard that humanitarians who have decided like Human Rights Watch not to pronounce on the legality of going to war, monitor uh, America's uh, interventions. Uh, carefully for whether they're compliant with the rules of conduct, um, like whether bombing causes too much collateral damage, even as within the military, the self-humanized military, you get um, military lawyers with different standards than the humanitarians looking for the same outcome, humane war. And so that sets us up for 9-11 when uh, America goes to war in so many places over the last 20 years. Initially, it's true it, it's, it's restricted to Afghanistan and Iraq and to, let's call it, heavy footprint intervention that could at times be atrocious. And of course, George W. Bush's lawyers attempt to lift the new concern for humane war from this uh, global war on terror, but they fail. And the, the main cause, uh, causes end up being around the restoration of humanity to the war on terror, not on whether to have one. So there's a torture debate. And when Barack Obama comes into office, he promises to fight humanely, even as he's extending beyond uh, chronologically and expanding beyond geographically the original territories of the war on terror with drones and special forces. Uh, and so what I see is that this picture is one in which the risk of belligerency that those who worried about humane war in the first place actually gets incurred finally. And it is, um, you know, natural that after the Cold War, um, we get a kind of new imperial ethics. And I just want to say that we should re-examine whether we accept an ethics where the result is endless war, even less violent, um, even with death and injury edited out, but with constant surveillance. And if you like nonviolent or increasingly nonviolent forms of domination. And I, I, you know, conclude that we should, we should, we should reject this outcome because uh, our ancestors, I think, had the better of the argument that we should care 
about domination and whether war happens, even in these new forms of less violent policing, rather than whether the conflicts are becoming humane enough to our satisfaction. Right. I certainly wanted to uh, return to that question of what we may learn uh, from the past as, as a final question later on. But before that, let me ask a question more specifically about something you mentioned when we were discussing the overall agenda of the book uh, er earlier. Uh, you mentioned that the presidency of Barack Obama in many ways uh, motivated you to, uh, to write this book. And indeed, you, you do insist in the book that liberal internationalists and neoconservatives, you know, who are often depicted as being in some kind of great struggle uh, with each other in some kind of great political battle, they in fact have uh, a lot uh, in common. They haven't been all that, all that different, uh, in fact. And you also draw some really striking uh, parallels between Obama uh, and Trump, right, both in terms of their rise and then what they, what they have been up to while uh, in power. And I think these parallels might indeed surprise uh, some of your readers, I, I, I imagine. Now, may I ask what kind of, what, what lines of continuity uh, you see between uh, recent uh, presidents, maybe from uh, George W. Bush uh, onwards, and how you would view uh, the specifics of the Obama uh, presidency, right? He's really a president who's a uh, immense talents of persuasion you clearly recognize in the book, but whose influence, at least that's how I've read it, uh, you, you, you seem to find perhaps even less uh, salutary for those uh, exceptional uh, talents. So to begin with the, the, the kind of origins that you rightly um, identify, I think we, we should go back to the, the moment after Vietnam, which uh, it involves a, a, a ferocious contest in the Democratic Party of the United States about um, how, how to respond to this catastrophe. And it wasn't just that anti-war energy declined in general, as I discussed with you earlier, but that the anti-war faction in the Democratic Party because of the catastrophic defeat of George, George McGovern, the peace candidate, uh, it, it is, is seen to have uh, been delegitimized. Um, and that leaves two other factions. Uh, uh, there are those who originate as Democrats and become neoconservatives. Uh, followers of Henry Scoop Jackson, a, a, a kind of uh, Cold War anti-communist, uh, but democratic senator. And then there are their rivals who stay in the Democratic Party and become uh, so-called liberal internationalists like Richard Holbrook. And what both of these two factions share, unlike the anti-war party uh, that McGovern had once headed is that they, they, they imagine a, a new mission for American hegemony and therefore, if necessary, for its military. Now, they, they bicker with one another as the Cold War ends uh, about what that mission is. And the neocons talk more in terms of democracy promotion where 
the liberal internationalist talk more in terms of human rights, but these are convergent and they tend to support war after war um, because what they seem to share is a kind of imperial hegemonic posture um, towards the necessity of a American force um, looking for causes. And Barack Obama, you know, comes after the neoconservative foreign policy in, in the end of George W. Bush um, and Dick Cheney. And I think, you know, he faces a choice. Um, he also rejects George McGovern, like all Democrats, at least until recently, that was the beginning of wisdom. And so he, he is, is, has to decide how to correct for neoconservative mistakes without drifting too far into a direction that relinquishes America's beneficent role in the world, including when it comes to military force. And I think we can now see that the continuities with Bush are more striking than the discontinuities. Indeed, as we've already mentioned, while he humanizes the war on terror, he extends and expands it. Uh, uh, and this, I think, um, is something that we're only now beginning to reckon with. Um, because of course he was much better than Bush, let alone his, uh, his, his the, 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 the Donald Trump who replaced him. And yet there's even continuity there. So as you rightly point out, I, I argue in the book that for reasons we have to think about, Obama appeared a more of an anti-war candidate, a peace candidate, not like McGovern, but at least in relation to Bush, then he, uh, then, uh, he, then kind of turned out to be reflected in his presidency. Uh, and so as the way I put it is to say that he ran as an anti-war candidate and governed as an endless war president. Now, amazingly, Donald Trump can be said to have undergone the same uh, uh, dynamic because he, while a militarist in many ways, uh, really broke through in, in his contest with other Republicans for the nomination to run in 2016 uh, by denouncing the Iraq war, which was not, not allowed in the Republican party as late as that campaign. And indeed, Donald Trump adopted the end endless war hashtag. Now, I think we're gonna debate this for some decades or centuries to come, but it, it remains only fair to note that Donald Trump went far further than Barack Obama in uh, attempting, struggling against other forces to withdraw troops. Uh, Barack Obama started it after his surge in Afghanistan there and in Iraq uh, 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 went even further. 
Um, but uh, Trump adopted that attitude towards troops in place in a place like Somalia, too. Um, Biden, because Trump couldn't wasn't allowed to withdraw, finish the job. Uh, and so what remains to be seen is, does Biden also, in spite of this, what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now, become an endless war president? Because, of course, he's insisted he has to engage in counterterrorist operations with all the unholy legal authority that presidents from Bush to Trump have arrogated. Uh, with the drones, with the missiles, with the special forces, uh, which have, you know, expanded their reach, even as troops have been pulled out six, by these successive presidents. And so I think it's a fascinating moment. Will the dynamic break? Or are we seeing a kind of purification of this policing surveillance form of war, this humane form of war? that it may turn out to be the, the most chilling and most durable legacy of the, uh, of the last few decades. It's certainly true that uh, your book gets published uh, at a very exciting moment and probably exactly at the right moment in time. This is really a moment when we are debating uh, all, these, all these questions. And again, like, like you mentioned, uh, which way the US is going to go is, is really quite unpredictable uh, at the moment, also, also in this respect. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a broader uh, question next, because one of the things that really fascinated me while, while reading uh, the book is how you really start uh, the book by also talking a lot about European experiences. Uh, and then at some point, uh, the, the focus really becomes the US, right? In, in many ways, the second half uh, of the book uh, titled uh, Humanity is mostly uh, devoted uh, to the US. But I think there's a very interesting dynamic uh, going on there, right? You, you, for instance, write that the American-run peace that took hold in Europe after 1945 would lead the very people for whom humane war was devised, that is to say white Europeans, to stop slaughtering one another. But in those very same years, Americans would commit to fighting all around the world, right? So there almost seems to be a kind of exchange of roles here around the mid 20th century, at least that's one way to, to interpret uh, what you're arguing here. Uh, and indeed, while, uh, while uh, you know, Europeans are really prominent in the first half, they sort of disappear, right? So I, I was wondering whether you would care to, to briefly comment on how you see the respective roles of these two major players uh, that you study uh, in the book. And more specifically, I also wanted to ask you to return to the question of how histories of European imperialism and European conceptions and also practices of colonial war and counterinsurgency uh, may have informed uh, more recent uh, US policies. Could we perhaps draw lines of continuity there uh, or, or would that perhaps be too far-fetched uh, in the end? It's, it's a wonderful question and, and, and it gives me the opportunity just to tell your, your listeners uh, or readers that you know, I, I am by training and, and in some respects by profession, a historian of Europe. Uh, and I've, I've, I've trespassed on the history of the United States uh, 
mainly as a citizen of that country and trying to belatedly learn something about uh, my own country's past. Um, but it seemed to me, not just for autobiographical reasons, but for historical ones, absolutely crucial to put the American invention of humane war recently in its global setting, which meant um, thinking about it in relation to the trajectory of European empire, um, as well as European reform. Because, you know, one way in which I think the, the, the his, historiography has been um, mistaken is by failing to see um, how fundamental Americans were to the, the ideas about peace that went, went global in a certain sense through Europeans, through European mediation. And I dwell in particular on, on Lev Tolstoy's a cult of certain American pacifists uh, and as a conduit to kind of the, the European peace movements of the later 19th and early 20th centuries. But correspondingly, I don't see any significant credit that Americans get in inventing the cause of making war more humane. That seemed, that that honor, dubious though it is, seems to me to fall to the Swiss and soon to lots of others with Americans joining late um, and not very, you know, seriously. Um, uh, and so then we, we really are, have to think about as you say, this, this moment in 1945, um, which is a moment in which the European peace movement's fondest dreams uh, of, a, of a transatlantic peace or a white peace, as it was sometimes openly called, come true finally. It took two world wars and it, more important, it takes American hegemony. Um, but, it also involves America in, in global wars of the kind it hasn't fought. Now it had its own empire. It was constantly intervening in Latin America and it, it had its own pitiless counterinsurgency in the Philippines, which I narrate as part of my story about how um, inhumane the laws of war were and how much disregard they got. Um, but it's, it's, it's hugely significant that even as Europeans are at peace and, and can present as apostles of morality with their colonial violence done, Americans take up the mantle or shoulder the burden of the brutal wars of empire's past. So that's why I think the break in, in world history is within this long period of American responsibility. Europeans had not fought humane wars, although they had some of its citizens had imagined such a thing and debated whether to have it. Americans actually invent it uh, in practice. And that creates kind of fascinating lines of continuity and discontinuity. I think it's still deeply imperial. I think it's still deeply racialized in the sense that we still live in a world that's fundamentally divided by race uh, and race intersecting global class. Um, wealth and power in our world remain deeply racialized. Um, 
uh, and that's thanks to you know Europeans and their American successors. But somehow it seems different that unlike all the great powers and and imperialists of the past, there's nonetheless this remarkable move to a new form of racialized domination that is more humane uh, for the sake of legitimation at home and abroad. And so I want to trace in the end that discontinuity, which is, is not without its continuities in the long history of domination that Europeans exercised and, and racialized, but that Americans have renovated and updated in morally fascinating, as well as politically noxious new ways. No, that's that's very impressive, and I think that's really that's really a subject we could be discussing for a lot uh, longer. But I'm afraid we probably have to uh, come to a close at some point. And so I would still like to ask a final question, because you really indeed uh, return uh, to Leo Tolstoy uh, towards the end uh, of the book, uh, and you return to him for the specific reason uh, because he indicated that. Uh, uh, reformers who colluded with states uh, to entrench uh, such a humane form uh, of, uh, of violence should in fact be indicted in a sense, right? Should, should certainly be, be critiqued. Uh, and, and you do argue that, that he really anticipated uh, many of the key uh, concerns that, that you also tackle uh, in your own book, right? So to say, uh, what, what does civilizing warfare uh, in the end uh, help us, right? And, and you may um, this then then means that your book may indeed be read as a, as a treatise on how narrow and in many ways also unusual our dominant conceptions and our main preoccupations today have been, and that also then leads me to to want to ask you a bit about how you understand studying the past, right? Because in many ways, what you do in this book is to open uh, wide horizons uh, through which we can also understand how to critique our present uh, situation. Uh, and I was wondering whether that would be a fair way uh, to describe your overall agenda as an intellectual historian and as a scholar uh, dealing with uh, international humanitarian law in particular uh, in this book. So would you say that that this new book, which again is is, is published by a, a non-academic uh, publisher aims to also help societies uh, rethink some of the most powerful uh, moral perspectives uh, and through that it would also uh, aim to contribute to a revival of peace activism uh, in the present. Well, your, your, your description is over generous and I can't, you know, uh, anticipate all that much uh, impact for you know, the book, um, I would be thrilled to see it, I think, enter into a confluence with the much more powerful tendencies that I see, especially amongst um, American and, and, and global youth, really, to demand a more peaceful world than their parents and grandparents have given them. And, and I situate myself autobiographically kind of in between the elder and the youth, because I was, as, as a middle-aged person, I grew up at a time when we, we did inherit a unipolar moment at the end of history and were 
were inducted into a, 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 a militarist ideology as that has been catastrophic, not just for non-Americans, but for the United States itself. Um, and I, I greatly appreciate that a, a lot of different people have been thinking beyond those old beliefs, although they're tenacious as this last week of debate about, for some, the horror of American, uh, America not having a role um, has, has demonstrated. I, you know, I, um, I have um, in part strategically looked back for um, at Tol Tolstoy as a, a kind of moralist with whom we have to reckon. I don't follow him slavishly. And I close the book in a sense by suggesting that even he didn't see the possibility of nonviolent forms of domination that actually his own criticisms of humane war or worries about it um, help us um, identify now. Um, but more generally, you know, I see as, as you're indicating the purpose of, of intellectual life as political uh, to, to uh, instigate debate amongst our fellow citizens locally and globally about what future to have together um, to help orient those debates. And in that sense, history in general has to be presentist. Uh, now, there, there will have to be debates if that's one's framework about avoiding opportunism, um, making sure that one is not treating the past as a pack of tricks to play on the dead. But I think that um, what, I, what I've most aspired to do in a way with Tolstoy is show that he actually can speak to us in his own voice from beyond his time and his grave because we share enough with his time that his concerns are apt even in a, a, a radically different situation that he couldn't have imagined. And that's most of all when it comes to technology. You know, famously in War and Peace, he has Prince Andre look up his main character uh, and at the sky and, and it becomes a symbol of justice. But for us, it's the reverse in ways that he couldn't have anticipated. And that's why I begin the book with drones in the sky and emphasize the, the really nauseating history of air warfare as it was so brutal and became more humane with drones. Um, and yet, in notwithstanding that difference, he's someone who can orient our thinking about domination and about domination in this realm of war and peace, even today and in, in the future. Thank you so much for the entire conversation and for addressing all my questions uh, so substantially. Uh, it has been my great pleasure to discuss with Samuel Moyne today, who has just published a new book under the title Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, a book which offers a fascinating intellectual history and also amounts to a critical intervention into ongoing debates. 
I am certain that the key arguments of this new book will generate many further conversations. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Sam Moyn. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions. And thank you all for listening and till the next time. Thank you.